Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Okay, askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Send me your questions. Also, of course, uh, short questions, flash answers. I'm looking for more of those. Uh, I'll be doing some today, but uh, my queue is a little low on those. I got lots of other questions, of course, and please keep sending them in. And um, this episode is mostly going to be questions from my Patreon supporters because those questions always go to the top of my queue. All right, guys, let's go ahead and get right to it. I do want to put in a plug, of course, as always, for my podcast this week. I had a really nice talk, got to bounce some ideas off a friend of mine named Mark Turry, and we discussed bubble worlds and thoughts, you know, the whole how we get ourselves into these little situations where we look at things through a particular lens and we kind of forget that there is a bigger world out there and a larger truth that we can find if we put on our critical thinking hat and take off our dedicated group member hat or dedicated ideologue hat or however you want to put it. Um, and that is the real key to freedom of mind and freedom of thinking and, and thought and the ability to get along in life, um, I think, from a position of knowledge and really what gives you power and the ability to um, solve the problems that we are dealing with. We are so hyperpartisan these days that we only look at things through the lens of whatever w- group or partisan you know, party we're part of. Not just politics. This is across the boards, almost uh, uniform across all spectrums, and um, and it's a disturbing trend. And so I thought I would do a podcast to talk about that. I hope you'll check it out. Um, did my best to try to be chill, not get into politics, not make it a political message for the left or the right, because frankly, I'm not really feeling the love on the left or the right these days. I'm a little impatient with both sides and their device. So I'm trying to offer a more measured response, and and I'm just doing my part. All right, guys, let's answer your questions now, because that's what you're here for. Michael Yoder, I was in two separate car accidents 10 years apart, neither of which was my fault, and which screwed up my shoulder. If I went into an org or mission, I know the likely result would be that I'd be labeled a potential trouble source, PTS. But if I'm not a full-blown Scientologist yet, how would an auditor or staff try to determine who the suppressive person, SP, is that I must be connected to? Or would they go that far until I was well into courses and coughing up the big bucks? Thanks for the question, Michael. This is a good one. And um, I will say that there are different levels or uh yeah levels or of complexity involved with dealing with somebody who is PTS if you go into an org and you have the you know accident history that you talk about here that screwed up your shoulder then there was going to be a time in your past when you were PTS that was the only reason you had an accident according to L Ron Hubbard all accidents illness injury sickness 
all of it has to do with being PTS. Um, so that means in Scientology as a potential trouble source that you are connected in some way to a suppressive person. However, it doesn't have to be that the person you're connected to is the suppressive person per, you know, per Scientology's descriptions and policies on it. It could be that this person is doing things that are reminding you of a suppressive in your past. Maybe you were connected to somebody who was really antisocial, who was really trying to make your life hell, trying to degrade you, invalidate you, tell you how horrible you are all the time, in a, sometimes in a roundabout way, not necessarily in a direct way. And this suppressive person, you know, you finally got away from them. Maybe they were your boss. You quit the job. Maybe they were a family member. You moved out of home. Maybe they were a friend. You broke up the friendship. However, you got away from it. Now here you are in this current situation in life, and you run into somebody who maybe says things that are similar to what that suppressive used to say or does things or dresses or looks similar in some fashion to that suppressive. That's enough of a reminder to re-stimulate you, as it's called in Scientology, to re-stimulate that past episode of suppression, and so you act, you know, sort of PTS now. And the idea with the with the sort of levels of handling is as a, as a new Scientologist, somebody fresh in off the street, and this gets done with people who come in fresh off the street. This is a, this is an, um, not an introductory action, but Almost. It's a very, you know, very beginning action in Scientology is to DPTS someone, to make them no longer PTS. And the way that gets done is to spot who the suppressive is, right? Discover who it is, and then handle or disconnect. It's one of the two. Right, So the first thing they have to do, though, before they can even do the spot who the SP step is, is they have to educate you about this. They have to indoctrinate you into everything I just talked about. And they have to lay this on you in such a way that you totally understand it, totally agree with it, and believe that this is how life works. This isn't how life works, by the way. Uh, none of what I'm saying is has any real bearing on why people get sick or have accidents. Yes, if somebody is being offensive to you, is being a distraction to you, is trying to ruin your life, then yeah, you can have some problems with them. And yeah, that could be distracting. That could be anxiety-inducing. And you could end up having accidents or, you know, something like that or get stressed out and get sick. I mean, that can happen. But to say, let's be clear about this, that all illness, all accidents, all injuries are only and solely the re because of a suppressive person, because you have become PTS, that's, that's nonsense, there's no way that's true, right? People get sick all the time, has nothing to do with some offensive antisocial personality in their life. But Scientology insists that it does. So that's what I'm saying is the bullshit part, okay? Um, it's clear to see that you know stress and anxiety definitely can mess with your biology. Uh, we see this every day. And so, you know, of course that can have an effect on you. But, you know, as I've made the point many times with Scientology and other destructive cults, what they do is they take a true piece of information and they, they use hyperbole and exaggeration to blow it up to make some big, broad statement that is a universal truth that
that must always be true under all circumstances. And that's exactly what L. Ron Hubbard did with this. Okay, so as far as how they're going to deal with you, you're going to get an interview. And they're going to sit you down and they're going to clear up a bunch of words with you. They're going to ask you the definitions of words like invalidation, evaluation, suppression, potential trouble source, you know, etc. And they're going to clear these up with you, preferably using an e-meter, but it doesn't have to be done that way. And then uh, it's the, the, the first level of handling actually is an unmetered action where you do this indoctrination and you get educated on this. And then they ask you, okay, so now you've learned all about this stuff. So who is it? Who's the SP, right? There's direct question. And if, uh, and if you can spot it, you know, and, oh, it's, you know, Bill. Okay, good. Boom, boom. Now, do you want to handle or do you want to disconnect, right? How do you want to deal with this, right? Is Bill somebody that you need to have in your life? Is Bill somebody that you should have in your life? Well, let's go ahead and evaluate that. And you have some back and forth with the interviewer. And the interviewer is a Scientology ethics officer. It's not an auditor. It could be both, but it has to be somebody who is trained on the PTSP stuff as well as, um, and that's usually ethics officers. Not all auditors are trained on that stuff. So the ethics officer uh, will work this out with you and come up with a little program. See, sometimes just spotting the SP at this at this introductory level where they're just trying to do a nice, light, simple handling with you, it might be that just spotting it, oh, it's Bill, ah, right, okay, I feel better now. And they uh, and the ethics officer goes, okay, good. So you want to, you know, what do you want to do about this? Oh well, I'll just, you know, tell Bill to fuck off, and that'll be that. <laughs> or um, maybe Bill is, you know, um, somehow antagonistic to you doing Scientology. So now you have to decide what you're going to do about this. And maybe the handling is going to be something like, hey, Bill, back off, man. I want to do Scientology, and you keep giving me crap about it and telling me to watch this show with Leah or pointing at Chris Shelton's videos or something, and I'm not interested. And if we want to stay friends, then I really need you to just chill out about this. And that's the kind of handling step that might get done by a Scientologist. If Bill persists in continuing to talk shit about Scientology or tell you that, you know, you shouldn't be doing it or there's something wrong with it, and maybe Bill, you know, does back off a little bit, but still throws some comments out here and there and that sort of thing. Well, the goal of the Scientologist is to remove all of that from their environment. They don't want the criticism. They don't want to hear it. Um, now, it's obviously a good thing that they hear it. It's a, it's a correct thing that, you, that Bill is saying, dude, I care about you. I don't want you getting involved in a cult. I, I think there's a problem here. I really wish you would look at some of the information I have to give you. Um, there's nothing really that that's being a good friend, <laughs> but to a Scientologist who's getting indoctrinated into Scientology, that's evil. That's horrible. That's bad because it's anti-Scientology. So you gotta you gotta tap that at, you know down. You gotta get rid of that. So so Scientology's view, of course, is that that's very bad. Excuse me. So. If the person persists, if Bill keeps coming, then the Scientologist is going to tell, the ethics officer is going to tell this new Scientologist, uh, okay, well, it looks like handling isn't working, so it looks like it's going to be time to disconnect, right? Cut the line, get Bill out of your life, because Scientology is the thing that's improving your life. This guy clearly doesn't want you to improve your life. 
This guy clearly isn't a friend of yours. This guy clearly doesn't want have your best interest at heart. So, you know, cut and run, man. You know, that's it. Just get this guy out of your life. And you'd be told, you know, that basically. And it might go a bit longer, of course, and it might be a more roundabout explanation of how to go about it. But that's the that's the direction they're going to push you in. So even at the lower levels, you will get these PTS handlings being done. They can become more complicated. They can become more intense. They can even involve an auditor and e-meters and auditing and, and having to get what's called a PTS rundown or a suppressed person rundown. And, you know, and this can get pretty involved and pretty expensive. But they're not going to throw that stuff at you on day one or two or three. They're going to try to do these lighter forms of handling first. Okay, so that's basically how that works. PZ, the Church of Scientology instructs its followers not to go on the internet and not to believe anything you read there, as it's all false. Yet they publish websites attacking their critics on the very medium they tell their own is full of lies. The ex-Scientology community are brutally vilified by what is clearly one-sided allegations that are dubious at best and downright lies at worst. I've seen your badge of honor, Chris, and you even get to appear in other apostate websites as being one of their accolades. Well done, you. Clearly, you and the other ex-Scientologists are landing hits as otherwise they wouldn't bother trying to discredit you all. How can they reconcile this blatant hypocrisy? Hey, thanks for the question, PZ. And um, it's a good one. So, there's, um, okay, first off, let me clarify that, and I might have definitely said this in the past uh, in, a, in a loose sort of way, so let me be super specific now, that Scientologists are not banned from the internet. They are banned from looking at anything critical about Scientology on the internet. Big difference. And very important difference because Scientologists use the internet all the time. But, um, and Scientologists, of course, on the base in the Sea Org, I mean, they're on the internet as well, too, doing uh, skip tracing, looking people up, calling them, you know, stuff like that. But they're filtered so that they cannot have access to anything that's critical of Scientology. No videos, no Finding Leah or Mike Rinder or any of that. So the internet is controlled on the Sea Org bases. And Scientologists, public staff, Sea Org, are all uniformly told, and it's made very, very clear, you are not to look at anything negative about Scientology on the internet. And, the, and the, of course, the reasoning and justification for this is along the lines of, look, we're Scientology. It's all here. The books, the, the, the lectures, the materials, the classrooms, the auditing rooms. This is it. So if you're going on the internet, why? Why are you doing that? Everything you need to know is right here, right? And if they were a transparent organization, and if they really were trying to do what they lay out in their creed, the, the creed of the Church of Scientology, then that would be fine. That would be, that would, that would be great. But they're not. They're deceptive, they're criminally deceptive. And so the picture that is painted of Scientology in a Scientology organization is not the complete picture. And they are not at all willing to fess up to or uh, admit to any of their crimes or 
abuses, whether they're criminal activities or not, they are certainly engaged in human rights abuses on a daily basis. So they won't fess up to any of that. So the truth is that you will not find the full truth about Scientology unless you do go on the internet and listen to us apostates who have stories to tell and facts to share. Uh, Okay, so how do they reconcile this, though, that they are creating hate websites about apostates? where they lie about us and, and, and literally tell just gross exaggerations, if not outright blatant falsehoods. Well, um, they are making those websites for Scientologists. They'll send Scientologists to those websites, and they will have them read them. That's what they're there for. They are dead agenting. The critics, uh, the bad people, you know, like me or Tony or Leah, etc. Um, so that's what they use those websites for mostly is for internal use. But they put it out to the big broad public on the big wide internet in case we get Google searched. Right? Somebody searches for me. They've paid good money. So the Church of Scientology has paid good money to, to, to Google so that if you search for me, their site comes up at the top of the list. Uh, I mean, thanks. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, in a way, it's free. You know, PR for me. I don't like the fact that that stuff exists, of course, because I don't like lies being told about me, no matter where the source of of it is. But as you say, it is a bit of a badge of honor as well, and I and I get that, and I'm down with that. I I, I totally am. Um, But anyway, as far as the hypocrisy goes, once it's clear that they can go on the internet, they can go to Wikipedia, they can go look stuff up. If they're stockbrokers, obviously they have to be on the internet. I mean, pretty much everybody has to be on the internet these days professionally for one reason or another. So it can't be that they are denied all internet access, and and that's actually not the case. So with that clarification, I hope it makes it clear that it's not total hypocrisy. And actually, again, the, the, the OSA sites the, that have been put up about the critics are actually for Scientologists to read, you know. And I'd say most of the clicks and hits that those sites get come from Scientologists. There you go. Kevin Zay. In my locality, adherence to mitigation guidelines such as mask wearing and social distancing seems to be less in lower income areas. As a fan of psychology, sociology, and a critical thinker, I was wondering if you have any insight as to why this is occurring. Sure, there's a number of reasons all up and down the the social ladder here. I mean, one, people in lower income areas might not have full access to the information that's available. They uh, might not have internet access at all. I mean, that that's a that's a fact of life still in areas across the United States. Sad but true. Um, so they don't have availability to the information you and I have access to. There are also factors of brute raw survival where, um, you know, maybe they can't afford masks, they can't afford, or they don't feel like they can. I mean, you know, I know a mask isn't any big deal now. You know, a few months ago, it was a little bit of a, of a bigger problem finding masks. Now you can go down to Dollar Tree and get them. But, you know, that's that's a factor. Not so much now, but it has been a factor. Um, you also have 
um, ideologies, political beliefs, you know, ideas that um, that some of these communities might have that they don't need, any of that, you know, liberal nonsense, for example, um, you know, they don't need any of that medical nonsense, they don't need any anybody telling them what to do, I mean, there's a host of reasons here going on. Um, and, of course, we see, as I talked about in my podcast this week, uh, we see, of course, a lot of personal identity getting wrapped up in this, where people are taking on this anti-mask thing in the same way the anti-vaxxers or conspiracy theorists have, where they buy into these narratives that these that masks are a symbol of oppression. And, and this is not, you know, for if you are, if you have exposure to certain sites or or television or news channels or whatever, then you might suck that message up and think that that's true, probably because there are other points of messaging going along with that anti-mask rhetoric that you agree with or that empower you in some fashion or make you feel like you're the one who is in charge of the conditions of your life, right? Because that's what most people pretty much just want is they want to just get along in their lives live them um, peacefully, happily, healthily. And these folks who are the anti-mask people have really bought into an entire web of deceit and lies as to how the CDC and the WHO and the health guidelines and Dr. Fauci and all of that is this liberal conspiracy. And it's really quite something to watch. Uh, it's, It's horrifying and tragic in many ways, but it's people, man. You know, people really buy into some of the things uh, because it serves their self-interest in some fashion, or they perceive that it does. So, um, so I don't know. Those are a few of the factors behind this. You know, there's a lot of psychology going on here. There's a lot of propaganda going on. Um, now we have a reversal of messaging from the top, where Trump and um, his administration are sort of seem to be pushing that masks are good. And people should wear them now, um, but they still haven't really, you know, made, kissed and made up with Fauci or with CDC or who or what, you know, whatever this stuff is going on. It's all been so heavily politicized, and that's a real shame because health shouldn't be a political matter. Um, but that's that's kind of where we've gotten to in this country with some of the divisiveness and this business of we have to race to the extremes of of whatever subject or topic we're talking about. You know what I mean? Because it's got to be that way. You know, it's the truth. Arr! You know, and I don't know. You know, the truth doesn't generally make me. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'll avoid saying that, actually, because that's not necessarily true. Anyway, I like the truth, and I'd rather live with an uncomfortable truth than a pleasing lie. But that is not the case with a lot of people out there. And so that's what we get, you know. Um, it's pretty It's pretty sad, but that's what's going on. Um, I think if you watch my podcast this week, that will be a more embraceive answer to the question you're asking me, though, Kevin. I know I'm really not giving you like a full rundown here, but I'm going to kind of punt and go with what I was talking about in terms of bubble worlds and stuff in the podcast. And I hope that that conversation also informs on this question, too, because I know you you follow my you know most of my work on that. So anyway, there you go. Cyprian Ivanov. There are some pamphlets put out by the newsstands near metro stations in D.C. by Scientology advertising Dianetics. The format is like a very small newspaper. 
The graphic design is very nice, but the contents are full of the usual Scientology vagueness and hyperbolic testimonials. What kind of program runs the distribution of such pamphlets? Okay, so you're probably looking there, I'm guessing, because you're talking about newsstands and free pamphlets that are being given out, that you're probably looking at um, promo dumps by the local Church of Scientology in Washington, D.C. Every local church, every every city-level church has a pamphlet and promo distribution plan, where, which is pretty simple. Basically, they get staff members to go out and distribute them by hand on the streets, or they find promo dumps in various stores, newsstands, book places, etc., where they can put books or their pamphlets and, and news, newsletters and, and literature. And that is run out of the Division 6, the public divisions, of every single Scientology city-level church. Um, so here in Denver, we see that. In Portland, you see that. In, in Los Angeles, you see that. Every church is individual as to how active they are with that. Sometimes they don't have a whole lot of staff or the staff are not super interested in doing that because they don't want to deal with the rejection or the questions that they get inevitably asked or they're just shy. But they're supposed to be out selling books, giving out promo, giving out film tickets, giving out newsletters, uh, you know, and the kind of things that you saw, all of them filled with hyperbolic nonsense. But that's the plan, right? And there are a number of different avenues of getting promo out, newsstands being one of them. Um, This stuff gets printed in terms of the full promotional plan. The, The local churches don't necessarily print all of that promo. When you see copyright CSI, Church of Scientology International, you're seeing promotion that's probably been produced by the dissemination factory or or facility in Los Angeles, the the great big huge, you know, warehouse size printing facility where they've got really big printing presses and they can run off, you know, hundreds of thousands to millions of copies of these things at a, at a shot. Uh, and then send it out, you know, in, cer- in certain preset amounts to each of the level, each of the city level churches, and the city level churches actually pay a fee to Church of Scientology International for this service, for them printing up their promo. They also print magazines every month. Um, there is a major magazine that gets printed for the major service buyers, the, the hardcore Scientologists. And then there is a minor magazine, which is a smaller magazine that's sent out to their entire mailing list. And um, that would be anybody who's ever purchased anything from the local church. So the Denver church here, for example, might have a major mailing list that would be re- that would be referred to as the major list, and that would maybe be, you know, two, three thousand people. And that's everybody who's ever, let's say, done a major service. And then you have the minor list, which might be 12, 13, 16, 15, 20,000 names, depending on the local org, how long it's been around, how many names they've accumulated, um, how many they still have accurate addresses for, because when you get bad addresses, then you want to take them off the list until you can get it corrected. So that kind of is the way this, in a, in a, in a meta sense, that's kind of how this works. And um, I hope that answers your question. BB. What do you think about dealing with people who believe conspiracy theories? 
For example, a recent study showed more than 40% of Republicans believe that Bill Gates plans to use the COVID vaccine to inject microchips into people. There's tons of other conspiracy theories lately, of course, and I feel like it might be wise to deal with these people in a similar way to people who are in a cult. Be respectful, try to understand where they're coming from, and slowly try to poke holes in their beliefs. I've just been frustrated lately by people who are ostensibly somewhat smart, but have also totally bought into all the crazy conspiracy theories out there. Any thoughts? Hey, BB, thanks for this. Yeah, conspiracy theorists and all of this. Man, I've talked about this so much. These, it's, it's all about mindsets, right? And it's all about facts that you're willing to accept and acknowledge as true versus objective reality and, and how it really works. And most conspiracy theorists are so horribly simple-minded about their conspiracies that it just surrenders right away to critical thinking because the dots don't connect or they're making inferences or connections that are just, you know, out outlandishly silly. Um, Bill Gates, in you know, injecting microchips into people. How's that even supposed to work? I mean, it, you know, it, and this is why questioning this sort of thing leads to generally to unraveling it if you can do it right. Usually has to be done in person. I've never seen anybody taken apart online. Um, nor would I recommend ever trying to do that. It's just a waste of everybody's time. You really got to be in front of the person. Um, you know, and uh, anyway, you know, as far as this stuff goes, you got you basically have the right formula, BB. It's just it is um, taxing to deal with with people who are really at the extreme ends of it. In fact, it's almost impossible because what, you know, when you try to, let me let me offer this little bit of insight and then kind of maybe this will help, right? Um, and I learned this um, from a book called Behind the uh, Behind the Truthers or With the Truthers. It's it's a uh, uh, I'll put a link to it below in the description section for this video. But uh, a, a guy actually went, an investigative reporter actually went and really did a deep dive on this. Why do people fall for these beliefs? And it has nothing really to do with the factualness or unfactualness of the beliefs themselves or the conspiracies themselves. It mostly has to do with major life changes, traumatic episodes, midlife crisis, you know, sometimes in very, very, very rare circumstances is their mental illness involved. Generally speaking, these people are not mentally ill. They are not even bad critical thinkers in terms of being able to, to logic through a, a, a proposition or argument. They do it all the time. They just happen to be choosing facts and evidence that are outlandishly stupid to, to make their logical argument. So it's not their ability to think a thought through or think through connecting dots. It's the dots they're connecting. And why would they go in that direction? Well, something motivates them that they need, that emotional need is being met with the conspiracy theory, sometimes a laundry list of emotional needs, not just one. And so when you try to debate facts with them or poke holes in their theories, that's not, you know, if they didn't arrive to their conspiracy mindset through a, a logical series of facts. So a logical series of facts is probably not going to lead them out of it. There is an emotional base that all of those facts and, and ideas and, and conspiracy theories are resting on. And you have to dig down to what that's all about. 
Why is this person so compelled to believe that vaccines cause autism? Well, if they're a mother of an autistic kid, there's probably some real psychological issues going on there of guilt and grief and trauma. And, you know, this person is just stuck in this situation that they don't like and they cannot deal with not having an answer to the question of why is my kid this way? And we don't have all the answers yet to why autistic kids are autistic. We don't even have firm, solid, you know, rock-solid science yet on what that even means. What are these spectrums? How do they, you know, there's lots of framing for this. And I'm not trying to bring this up to get into some big debate about autism. I'm talking about the mothers. And I'm saying that they have emotional needs that are not being met by the science. And so they turn to this alternative anti-vaccine nonsense. Yeah, sure, there are problems with vaccines, but they don't cause autism. And this idea that, you know, that this is a general problem that is, you know, worldwide and we've got this big issue with this, you know, it just doesn't really work out that way. But the emotional needs of these mothers are not being met by those answers. So they adopt another set of answers that do meet their needs. And so if you really wanted to deal with that, you don't deal with it by arguing the facts of vaccines. You deal with that by helping that person individually to deal with their emotional problems and get them to come to a point where they can see that the reason they're clinging to these beliefs so hard is because they have to, because it's the only way they can make sense of the world. So if you can dig down there and rummage around in that area, and generally speaking, I think it takes professional counseling to do that kind of thing. So, because you don't want to just be digging around in somebody's head. So that's a chore. That's difficult. In fact, it's damn near impossible, especially online. So you're not going to really get anywhere with the person. And that's what's so frustrating in trying to talk to them. They're not, it's not, they're not coming at you with a, with a, um, a good faith argument. They're coming at you with emotional needs. And those emotional needs are met by this conspiracy theory. And it, it is beyond just the anti-vaxxers. There could be other conspiracy theories, flat earth, for example. This is big in the flat earth world. And that ties into a religious need most of the time with the flat earthers. They're very, very hardcore religious believers. Um and very, very distrustful of authority. I mean, this this deals with this gets into dealing with authority issues and trust issues. Um, you know, people don't trust the government. They have good reasons not to trust the government. But when they take it to an extreme and then adopt these crazy ideas, then then you're dealing with something else entirely. So Anyway, point is that there are underlying psychological issues for almost all of these things that don't have to do with mental illness. Okay, let me stress this again. None of what I'm talking about here about emotional needs or psychological needs, that's, that, that I'm not, that's not code word for mental illness. It's a very different thing. Okay, you can logic yourself into corners all day long and, and have a perfectly functioning brain. That has to do more with our bias, our, our bubble world thinking, our, our, um, you know, our prejudicial thinking, you know, that kind of stuff. So, and it's all, again, driven by emotion, okay? So, you know, at the end of the day, are these people, you know, dangerous? For the most part, no. Uh, for the most part, they're not. 
They're just people who have kooky ideas because their emotional needs are being met by those ideas. And they like to share them because they feel like they're on a mission now. They're on some kind of crusade to save the world. And this is what gives their life meaning. You know, so when you attack the theory, when you attack the conspiracy theory, they have so much adopted it as their own, as made it their own personality, their own mission, that you're attacking them as far as they're concerned. And they can't differentiate the two things, which is why attacking the conspiracy theories usually goes absolutely nowhere. Ah, so uh, I don't know. I don't know if that's helpful information. I don't know if it's useful at all, but that's how I see it. It's complicated. It's difficult. And um, and knowing all of this and looking at this problem as much as I have and dealing with it over the years the way that I have, it's why I just have kind of pushed it aside and, and don't really particularly try to attack or deal with or debunk conspiracy theories or flat earth or any of that stuff. It's a total waste of everybody's time, you know. It makes for interesting and and amusing content, but at the end of the day, it's pretty much a waste of everybody's time. So, I don't know. That's that's kind of how I see that stuff. Um, and like I said, I hope that was useful. Katie LaSalle, do you think Hubbard was jealous of the Star Wars success? Perhaps he thought my stories are far better than that. Hollywood should look into my novels. Yes, I definitely think that L. Ron Hubbard was jealous of Star Wars. In fact, I read that he was, excuse me, and that he penned um, the, uh, the Revolt in the Stars, the screenplay that features the whole OT3 Xenu narrative in it. Um, he penned that because he thought they had a real, realistic, good shot at getting that made into a movie that they would use to educate, indoctrinate the masses about what's really going on here under the faux heading of a science fiction film on par with Star Wars. So, yeah, that's the story I, I read and heard. And so, yeah, I think I think Hubbard was, uh, was jealous of that. And, of course, that attempt to make Revolt into the Stars uh, into a movie completely failed. Logamug. What are the titles of the books behind you? Okay, let's take a look. We've got, um, well, let me move my Boba Fett head out of the way there. Um, Never Split the Difference, Intelligent Disobedience, The Looming Tower by uh, Lawrence Wright. I've got The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. I've got Incognito by David Eagleman, How Emotions Are Made by Lisa Feldman Barrett. Uh, Influence by Robert Caldiani. I've got Steve Hassan's Combating Cult Mind Control, Lifton's um, Thought Reform in the um, Oh, in the Psychology of Totalism. Sorry, I was trying to get that whole title right. I got Steven Pinker's Better Nature, uh, Better Angels of Our Nature. I've got Sun Tzu Art of War back here. Um, let's see, Cracking the co- the Cult Code for Therapists. Um, Captive Hearts, Captive Minds, Cults in Our Midst, Destroying the World to Save It, another Robert Lifton book. Uh, Let's see, I've got uh, Arguably, which is a collection of essays by Christopher Hitchens. I've got The Cult of Trump by Steve Hassan. I've got Deconverted by Seth Andrews. 
Moral Minds by Mark Hauser, Escaping Utopia by Yanya Lalich. Very good book, by the way. I've got my book, Scientology A to Zenu, An Insider's Guide to What Scientology is Really All About. And I've got the Bible, the Quran. Uh, let's see, Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me. <laughs> And the, the Power of Myth by Joseph Campbell. That's the whole list. MetFan012000. What is the easiest OT level to do, time-wise, difficulty level, financially, etc.? OT1. The very first OT level is basically the equivalent of um, some very short sessions that are very easy to do to sort of orient you to um, being an operating Thetan. And I think there might even be a, a walk in there or something. See, the OT levels have changed over the years, and, and the specifics of all of them do slip my mind from time to time. But I am positive that OT1 is the answer to this question. It's the easiest OT level to do. It's the fastest, and um, and there really isn't a whole lot on it. Most people do OT1, and they're like, all right, whatever, get me on to OT2. And OT2 is where things take off pretty fast. So um, there you go. All right, everybody, that was our show for this week. Tried to be as quick and dirty and, and uh, on as I could on my answers here, not ramble too much, but I hope you got something out of this episode, and I hope that um, you will hit that subscribe button if you have not yet done so. And also, to my subscribers, please make sure that you also get that little bell button clicked so you get notifications of new content as I put it up. And I have a request for everybody. I'll probably say this a few times over the, com over the coming weeks here. I really, really want to grow my channel, and I really need your help to do it. So if you're finding my, inf my content here informative, educational, and entertaining, please share it on your social media links. Uh, word of mouth is the best possible promotion. I get some really, really awesome comments from you guys, way more than I get the negative stuff. And I harp on the negative stuff all the time because it bugs me. But the positive stuff far, far outweighs it. And I really appreciate all of that. I really, really do. Um, and I hope that you guys will share this work so that more people can get on board here. And I can just, you know, do what I do uh, and have more folks maybe paying attention and maybe get some more critical thinking going on out there. That's really, at the end of the day, what I'm trying to do. All right. Thanks, guys. See you next week. Bye-bye.